Good morning. How are you guys? Good? Good? Sound worn out. Everyone, everyone's good out there? Okay, good. Good to see you this morning. Uh, so we are, uh, we're finishing up the Gospel of John today. I don't, I don't know, if you've been coming here for any length of time, I think we've been doing this this whole year. So if you've only come here in 2023, you've only heard me teach, I think, the Gospel of John. But it's, it's kind of sad when we move on from a book, you almost feel like you're breaking up with a girlfriend or something, you know, it's, and you move on to... That's a, that's a terrible analogy, but uh, we, we will start the book of 1 Samuel next week, which I am both excited and intimidated by, but we will uh, we'll start that next week. I don't know how long we'll be in 1 Samuel. It is, it is a fascinating book of the Bible. Again, I've said this before, the Old Testament to me is just, it's wild. It's just, there's so much going on and so much history and, and um, fascinating. So we'll get into that next week, but today we wrap up. Uh, book of the Bible we've been in for the last six or seven months, however long we've been in it, um, the Gospel of John. And where we are in this, if you have not been with us, is the last three chapters of John are kind of an emotional roller coaster if you're, if you're reading the Bible. In chapter 19, you have the unlawful arrest of Jesus, which, which he, he said was going to happen, right? So uh, he, he told everyone that that was going to happen. He's arrested and crucified in chapter 19. That may be some of the darkest, most disturbing parts of the entire Bible. I don't know about you, when I read about the crucifixion, the, the, the part that I think bothers me the most is the, the, the mockery of Jesus, the, the slapping, the spitting on, the crown of thorns, stuff like that. Uh, that really disturbs me and bothers me, the disrespect. And so we get that in chapter 19, very dark, very sad. And then we get the exact opposite in chapter 20. It's, it's the resurrection. It is beautiful. Um, we see the resurrected Christ. We see him interact with Mary and, and, and we see him reveal himself to the disciples when they're worshiping once where all of them are there except for Thomas and then the other time when Thomas is there and this beautiful interaction, this very fascinating interaction with, with Jesus and Thomas where he shows him the scars and lets him touch the side where he was pierced and very, very fascinating. Chapter 20 is this, this kind of powerful high point. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, bright and it's loud and it's awesome and it's a celebration. And then we end with chapter 21, which is a very unique ending. It's, some would think it was maybe anticlimactic. We, 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 but I don't feel like it is. I think it's a beautiful ending. But we end the gospel of John with Jesus literally having breakfast with his followers on the beach. And, and it is this very peaceful very tranquil. Um, there is some very challenging uh, things in the conversations that, that Jesus has with Peter. We'll talk about that. But the conclusion of John is, is almost like the basics of Christianity kind of 101, what it means to follow Jesus 101. It's simple. It's not complicated. It's a very simple setting. And I think all of that was intentional to kind of, to kind of one last effort for John to kind of show us who Jesus is and show us what it means to follow Jesus. It's, it's a phenomenal, beautiful ending, and um, it's great. And that's what, we're gonna re- that's what we're gonna read today. We're gonna talk about it today. What we're gonna focus on today is, is true belief. We're gonna find Peter in a predicament that all of us will be in on some scale, some level. This, this kind of crossroads of do we follow Jesus or not follow Jesus? And the thing is, is if we truly believe in Jesus, we're gonna talk about that a lot today, true belief versus kind of a intellectual belief, right? Um, if we truly believe in Jesus, there will be fruit of that. There will be evidence of that. And we'll talk about that a little bit today, okay? It's a happy picture to start your Sunday on, just some dead fish. Anyway, so you should have got a notes handout when you walked in. Everything should be in there. Everything will be on the screen. Uh, if you have a smartphone, everything's on the app. Click on sermon notes. You got everything right there. If you have a Bible, old school books, right? They still exist. If you have one of these, if you go to the fourth book of the New Testament, and um, we're in chapter 21, we'll do all that. Knock it out pretty quick today, and then you can go, uh, go enjoy the rest of your weekend. Glad you guys are here, okay? So let's finish up John and... Um, just kind of see what the Lord teaches us through this as we conclude this very, very important book of the Bible, all right? Father God, we love you. Lord, thank you for everyone in this room. Um, in all seriousness, God, thank you, Lord, that people would, would, would make an, an intentional time to come out here to worship you, to be with other believers, God, and people seeking and, and searching. And thank you, God, for, for your word that we can get into and 
learn more about you and learn more about who we are in a relationship with you. And so, Father, we just pray that you bless our church this morning. And not only our church, we pray for every church in our city. We pray for our other campuses and all the churches in those cities, God. And ultimately, we, we, we pray, Father, that as we get into this, Lord, that we will not only truly understand what it means to be a follower of you, but but there will be fruit of our, of our exploration of you, that there will be evidence of our pursuit of you, God, and, um, and that it honors you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to read a little bit. We'll go back and break it down. Beautiful, fascinating chapter, okay? John writes this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other of the disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out to the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know if it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? And it seems a little offensive, doesn't it? Right? Some guys are out there fishing. Jesus is like, hey, notice you didn't catch anything. They're like, no, thank you. No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to him. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay, so we talked about in the last chapter, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples at least two times that John recorded uh, right after the crucifixion. This is now the third time. Now, in this visit, seven of the disciples, are, are they're, they're hanging out with each other. So these guys, most of them, used to be professional fishermen. That's what they did for a living once upon a time. That's what they enjoyed. That's what they did to relax and hang out with each other and just kind of casually spend time with each other. So that's what they're doing. They're on the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, it's also called. And they're out there fishing. They fish all night. They catch nothing. Something else to notice is by the end of the Gospel of John, it becomes very evident that Peter is kind of the main focal point of the 12 disciples. He's going to be uh, uh, the leader when Jesus ascends into heaven. And very apparent by chapter 21, and he, he is very obviously kind of the dominant personality, right? He's the one that all the other disciples kind of naturally follow. Hey, I'm gonna go fishing. Oh, can we come too, Peter? And they just kind of tag along with Peter. And that's become evident, okay? So we get kind of a of, of following Jesus 101 lesson here, almost right off the bat. So John focuses on a futile fishing excursion. They go out and go fishing. They catch absolutely nothing. They're at least 100 yards away from Jesus, right? It says they were at least 100 yards offshore. And so someone is on shore, and they didn't recognize it was, it was Jesus. Maybe it was foggy out. Maybe it was just the distance, whatever it was. But Jesus says, hey, you don't have any fish. They're like, no, we don't have any fish. He says, try throwing the net on the right side of the boat. They do that, and they probably were like, well, we've done that you know, three dozen times tonight. Let's do it again. Why the heck not? They cast it over there, and they pull in roughly, what, what people estimate, is about 300 pounds of fish. 153 fish, roughly two pounds apiece. And so we don't know. Did Jesus plant the fish there, right? 
He's the creator God. Maybe he's like, hey, a bunch of fish over here. Maybe he just knew in his all-knowing omniscience that fish were going to be there. It doesn't really matter. The lesson is simply this, and this is very, very simple. It's like elementary level simple, but we forget it, and we forget it, oddly enough, the older we get. If we want to succeed in whatever, we're, whatever endeavor we are doing in life, we simply just need to follow the direction of Jesus. We forget this. And we forget this the older we get, right? As Christians, we're like, yes, I just do whatever Jesus tells us. And then something traumatic happens in our life and we try to take it into our own hands and we seem to just muck it up even more. When we just need to go back to the simple instructions of the word and listening to the Holy Spirit and we just need to do what Jesus tells us to do. Very, very simple. And don't you notice in our world, the further we get away from Jesus's instructions, the more chaotic it seems to be. The more we cast our nets the way we want to cast our nets, the less we catch, right? You see the analogy, you see the metaphor, simple, but extremely important. And so after it clicks, at least with John, after it clicks, we see at least John and Peter act exactly like we know John and Peter to act. John says, Peter, it's Jesus. And Peter jumps into the sea, ties uh, his outer clothing around him. They're a hundred yards away, at least, jumps into the water and he's not gonna wait for everyone else. He is going to swim to Jesus. Now, in our day and age, uh, we find it odd that, that Peter would put on clothes to go see Jesus. Uh, in Jesus's time, they had things that we don't have anymore. They had things like modesty, respect, consideration for others. Uh, we've let go of these things in our modern day society. We've evolved past such uh, archaic things as respect and modesty and decency and, and consideration. But, but in their time, they still had that. That's sarcasm, guys. And so Peter ties his outer clothing around him because when he sees his, his rabbi, his teacher, his mentor, someone that he loves, right, God, when he, when he goes to me, he wants to be decent and he wants to be respectful. Even though he's probably hot and sweaty and gross, and, and, but he wanted to be the best he could be to be considerate of Jesus. It, it, it is very interesting to me. If one were to ask me, Corey, what is the biggest cancer of society today? Besides the obvious that we've turned our back on Christ, the biggest cancer in society today is a lack of consideration for other people. That is it. There is a reason why when the religious people came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, what's the most important command? He said, well, that's easy, right? Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul. That, 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 that's the most important. But Jesus tacks on a second one. Maybe he was thinking of the United States. He tacked on a second one. And he said, the second one is similar to the first one, love others like you love yourself. And it is fascinating to me, we have lost this consideration for others. And this is one of the reasons why, why, why our society is so brutal and so aggressive and, and is, it is breaking down at the rate that it is going. And so look at this scene. This is beautiful, and I hope you guys can kind of picture this in your head. This scene, they, they, they get to the shore, they, they pull the boat up, uh, they're starting to pull the fish up onto the shore, and you have Jesus Christ, the, the king of the universe, sitting there on the beach with a little charcoal fire, and he's grilling up some fish for his friends. It is casual, and, and, and it, is, it is peaceful, it is sirene, it, 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 is, it is just this really beautiful scene. And we learn something very beautiful about God. We learn that God wants this kind of relationship with us. He wants this, this kind of, and sometimes in some ways, this casual, comfortable, hey, come sit and eat breakfast with me. Come, bring what you have and come and sit down with me and let's talk. And we learn that yes, Jesus is the God of the universe. That's what got him crucified. Jesus is the word that became flesh. Jesus is the one that is not created, but was the one that created all things through him, by him, for him, the word says. That is the creator God, but we also see that he is a caring, loving friend. And here is the balance that we have to strike. Because what we have a tendency to do, there, there are Christians that take this to either one extreme or the other, and both, in my opinion, are very dangerous. You have one group of Christians who talk about Jesus like he is this unapproachable, almost like vengeful Zeus-like like character, right? 
You have to dress a certain way. You have to look a certain way. You have to do all these things to be in the presence of Jesus. And it's this constant fear of being, you know, zapped by lightning bolts, this unapproachable God. And that is not altogether true. There's this other group of people, we see this a lot more, I think, in the United States, of people who treat Jesus like he's an equal, right? We, we keep trying to humanize God and put him on our frequency and, and on our level. And we say, oh, Jesus is my boy. Jesus is my papa daddy. I hate that stuff, by the way. Jesus is this and this. And they say all these really just kind of casual, flippant remarks about Jesus. Now, both of these extremes, I think, is dangerous and quite frankly, not biblical. There is this place in the middle, though, to where, yes, listen, we understand that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's what the word says, that he loves us, that he wants conversations in times like this with us. This is what, this is, to me, this is a good snapshot of what heaven is going to be like, right? This kind of relaxing, peaceful, tranquil, tranquil time with our creator. That's beautiful. But all those things are true. But the other thing is true as well. He is still the creator God. And the Bible says the beginning of all wisdom begins with a fear of the Lord. That's in Proverbs. Now, some people go, well, Corey, that's Old Testament. I've moved beyond that. Okay, well, let's use the New Testament. Heck, let's use Jesus himself. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew says, do not be afraid of those that can kill your body, but be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. He's referring to himself. He has the power to, to create the universe, to uncreate the universe, according to the end of the book of Revelation, and recreate a new heavens, universe, and earth, and create a permanent resting place for us for eternity. Now, does he love us? Is he our friend? Yep, he's also the one that can erase everything like that and create everything like that. And there is a proper respect and reverence we should have of him, right? So going back to this, though, these men have just been through some trauma. <laughs> These guys have been through, through an extremely stressful time. Some of them handled it well. Most of them did not handle it well. But after all of the craziness of the arrest and the crucifixion and even the resurrection, they're sitting here tranquilly hanging out with their Savior. And again, it's important for us not to miss that. We also have to remember that, that listen, life is going to be similar to this. There's going to be times of stress, of loss. There's going to be wins. There's going to be losses. There's going to be all of this stuff. The, the point is, though, is we need to make sure that we have that relationship with Jesus, that even in the middle of these ups and downs, peaks and valleys, that we have that peace. We have that serenity that comes with a relationship with him, that peace and that comfort. Not only that, it is in a relationship with him, as we're about to see, that we are restored okay, and forgiven. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. This is very important. What was happening is, if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, several chapters ago, Peter denies Jesus three times. And here we see Jesus giving Peter three opportunities to have his sin rectified and forgiven. The first thing Jesus asks Peter, though, is he says, do you love me more than these? Now, listen, there's a couple of different ways this can go. The first thing that this question can mean is it can mean Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these fish? Now, you'd say, well, of course he loves Jesus more than fish. The fish represents more than just fish. The fish represents Peter's former lifestyle. The fish represents the fact that Peter used to make a lot of money catching fish. He enjoys catching fish. Not only was it his livelihood, listen, it was his passion. He loved that. That's what he did for enjoyment. He just happened to get paid for it as well. He also got to hang out with his buddies. He got to hang out with his, his friends 
and his family. That's what supported his family. And so this first possibility is Jesus is looking at Peter. Listen, I hope we all take this to heart. Jesus is looking at Peter and he says, do you love me more than your livelihood? Do you love me more than your passion? Do you love me more than your friends? Do you love me more than hanging out and doing what you wanna do all the time? Do you love me more than that? The second thing that it could have meant is Jesus was asking Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Now that's an odd question, why would you do that? The reason why is Jesus wanted to put Peter in a position of authority and leadership. Let me tell you, if you want authority and leadership, there is an extra cost for leadership. You have to be a little bit more passionate than the ones who are around you. There's a lot of people nowadays who wanna be in leadership, but they don't wanna pay the price for leadership. They would love to be on a stage talking to a lot of people, but they don't know what it takes to, to get to that stage, to the, the, the kind of things one has to go through to, to have a cute little microphone on your, on your mouth and, and talk to a lot of people. They, they don't know, and I'm not just talking about myself. If you're a parent, a lot of people are like, man, I'd like to have kids one day. And you have a couple of kids and you're like, oh, this is a lot of work. Yes, it is. It, ta it takes us stepping up, doesn't it? It's a whole nother cost of having children, metaphorically and literally, right? There's a whole nother cost to that. There's a cost to leadership in your marriage. There's cost to leadership at work. And so the second possibility is, is Jesus is saying to Peter, if you wanna be a leader, you have to be more passionate than everyone else. You have to be willing to, 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 to put that cost up above all other things and accept that responsibility of leadership. So this conversation with Peter, what we find now is, I don't know what the other disciples were doing, but right now it's just Jesus and Peter. Maybe they started off talking by the fire, they're wrapping up breakfast, and now they're walking down the beach. And this conversation was probably very, very humbling for Peter. He was probably a little embarrassed. But listen, Jesus had to let Peter, um, or, or, or Peter had to let Jesus address that sin in his life and they had to talk about it. And they had to, he had to get forgiveness of it. So though Peter had probably made a slew of other mistakes, these were sins. And sin needs to be addressed and repented for. If we are to be reconciled to God, we have to address and repent for sin. Uh, Mike Lee sent me a really good article this week. He sent me a couple. One of them I thought was really, really good. And there was a pastor who was talking about a man in his church that, that they were talking and it came up that he was living in sexual sin. He was doing something sexually immoral. And his pastor said, well, you know, aren't, aren't you worried about that? You need to repent for that. You need to address that. And he goes, well, I mean, we all sin, but I'm saved, so everything's okay. And the pastor goes, well, I'm not sure if you are. Well, I said a prayer one time when I was young. Well, here, here's the thing. The true, we're gonna talk about this a lot here at the end. The true follower of Jesus strives to grow in their relationship with Jesus. And listen, the true follower of Jesus does not make peace with sin. The true follower of Jesus makes war with sin. Do you hear me? Jesus hates sin because sin destroys you. And it is not God's desire for you to make peace. It is not God's desire for us to make excuses for living in opposition to his teaching. The true follower of Jesus walks the way of Jesus. And when we walk the way of Jesus, we grow distant from sin. We're not perfect as we're gonna see in Peter here in a minute. We're moving away from that. But when we're constantly trying to make peace or justify things that are anti-Jesus, we are to make war with those things, not peace with those things. If we're to be reconciled with God, we have to repent of sin. We have to address sin and repent of sin. Not only if we're to be reconciled with God, if we're going to fulfill the call that God has on our life, we have to address and repent for sin. And you're like, ooh, thank God I'm not called to ministry. Wait a second. If you're a parent, you are definitely called to ministry. If you're a husband or a wife, you are called to ministry. If you have any neighbors that don't know Christ, you are called to ministry. If you go anywhere out in the world and interact with people who do not know Jesus, you are called to ministry. And we are incapable of being effective in our ministry when we have unrepentant sin. We have to address that. It prohibits us from functioning 
the way that Jesus wants us to function. We can't be the moms and dads. We can't be the husbands and wives. We can't be the friends and neighbors that God has called us to be if we are living in opposition to him through sin. We cannot do that, and we have to address that. Notice, in this conversation with Jesus and Peter, Jesus doesn't call him Peter. Jesus calls him Simon. Now, Peter means rock. And now Peter was being formed into that rock, into that leadership role, into that powerhouse. He's getting formed into that. But Jesus also wants to keep him humble. He wants to, to, to make sure that Peter understands your calling of leadership is not about you being supreme. Your calling of leadership is for you to be the lowest of the low, to be a servant. This is how Jesus came, right? Jesus came to earth so he could build a monstrosity of a building in the Western world and wear $2,000 sneakers and become really famous on TikTok as a pastor. That's why Jesus came to earth. No, absolutely not. That's what we do in the United States, but that's a bunch of garbage. Jesus came to be the lowest of the low. And he said to Peter, if you wanna be the greatest leader, be the lowest. Work in servitude. And this goes with all Christians. This is why Jesus said crazy stuff like, if you wanna be first, make yourself last. And this is why he's calling him Simon and not Peter. That you are to serve, the best leaders are servants, not people who, who lord their leadership over other people. Jesus didn't come like that. And who are we to serve? Everybody. You're to serve the lambs, that's the, the spiritual and literal youth, young people and spiritually young people. And Peter was also called to serve the, 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 the sheep, the spiritually mature and, and, and maybe even the literally mature, people who are older in age, that we are to serve all kinds of people. And so the third time that Jesus talks to Simon and he says, Simon, do you love me? At this point, Simon's like, man, what the heck? And maybe he understood what was going on at this point. Oh, he asked me three times because I denied him three times. Maybe it hits him but he's frustrated, he's grieved. It makes him sad. And what he does is he goes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And at that point, Peter's like throwing his hands up. He's just going, Jesus, I don't understand everything you're doing right now, but you know everything. I trust you, I trust you. And this is another kind of Christianity 101 lesson. Do you know what I think the three most important words in the entire New Testament is? I am persuaded. If we would all be persuaded that, that even when we don't understand everything that's going on, even when we are being humbled, even when we are maybe even being, uh, um, I don't know, when, when we are being, I don't wanna say punished, but when we are being corrected by Jesus, even in times like that, we, we need to throw our hands up and go, maybe I don't get it all, but, but I trust you. You know everything. I am persuaded that we reach a point to regardless of the circumstance that we are in, we say, Jesus, you know it all and I don't. And I put my trust in you. You know, every, Lord, you know everything. You know where my heart really is. You know that I love you. And in that, maybe Peter's even saying, you also know my shortcomings. You know the things that are wrong with me as well. I put it all in your hands. Now look, here we go, guys. This part is fascinating. This, to me, this is maybe one of the most fascinating paragraphs in the entire Bible. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, Follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them. Again, John. The one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one going to betray you? When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that, the, that this disciple would not die, John. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he wouldn't die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. 
And there are also many other things that Jesus did. Look how beautiful this is. Which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. Beautiful, powerful ending. So this is fascinating to me, very fascinating to me. After Peter is reconciled, he has been forgiven of his sin. He has been, he has been restored or he is being restored by Jesus. Jesus says, feed my sheep, says it three times, right? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And then look at this. Okay, so, so my undergraduate degree is in English literature. My minor was in film studies. Those things are worth about as much as that pair of flip-flops right up here. Maybe less because I can actually use those flip-flops. But what that degree has done for me is it has is, it is, it is built my imagination to where I can read something and then I feel like I can, I can picture it pretty clearly in my mind. Imagine Peter walking down the shore of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. Not just Jesus, nailed scarred hands, the rip in his flesh, right? The scar right there. He is walking with Peter. They're talking. And then all of a sudden, maybe they stop and they look at each other. And I can't imagine what Jesus's face looked like when he told Peter this. But he said, Peter, when you were young, you could do whatever you wanted to do. You could go wherever you wanted to go. But as you grow older, people are gonna tie you up and they're gonna take you to a place you don't wanna go. And John writes that Jesus was telling Peter that Peter was going to die just like he did. The scars, right? Imagine that moment. And then after telling Peter that he is going to die just like he, am, he, he, he did, that he is going to go through a, a horrible future. And, and re remember, Peter said to Jesus, you're the one that knows everything. So the one that knows everything is giving Peter his future and his future looks pretty turbulent. And then after hearing all of that, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, follow me. That's pretty intense, guys. That's pretty heavy. And do you know where Peter is in that moment? Peter is a crossroads. He's at a crossroads. At that moment, Peter could have went back to the boat. Peter could have went back to his lifestyle. He could have went back to his livelihood. He could have made more money. He could have been more comfortable. He could have done what he wanted to do. He could have hung out with his friends. He could have been with his family. He could have done all these other things. He could have gone back to that. He could have taken the safe, easy path, right? He probably would have, you know, uh, lost less friends on Facebook if he would have went that way. Maybe he would have been affirmed more if he would have went that way. Maybe he would have gotten less arguments if he went that way. Maybe his family would be tighter if he went that way. He could have gone that way. Or he could have gone the way that God wanted him to go, which is costly. But it has impact. But it has purpose, but it has meaning. Now listen, all of us in some small way are going to be at that exact same crossroad where we will sit there. And I'm gonna tell you what, guys, the last three years has taught me that a lot of people have made the wrong decision when it comes to that crossroad. A lot of people are more concerned about little hearts on their Facebook than they are about sticking to the principles of the word of God. How do I know that? Because I see your Facebooks. I see how many people relent on their faith to promote things that the Bible says is blatantly wrong. All kinds of things, Right? But we are more concerned about the affirmation. We are more concerned about the ease of living than we are about doing what the Lord wants us to do, paying that price, but receiving the great benefits and rewards of that. And we need to be honest with ourselves in this room. What do we want? Do we want kind of the shallow, temporary affirmation and, and glory of this world, right? Which I don't think it's much, by the way. Or will we be wise and not so myopic and exchange maybe the ease of today for the comfort and peace and glory of forever. Is it not foolish? Guys, we have people relenting on their faith just so people will not unfriend them. Unfriend them. I have 5,000 friends, 5, friends on Facebook. I have like four people that I ever hang out with, right? And, and, and so listen, I'm not trying to be mean in here. But is it not absolutely insane when you take a couple of steps away from it that people would compromise eternity for a little bit of affirmation now? Is that, am I the only one? Am I taking crazy pills or have we all lost our minds in society? 
But that's the road that we have gone. And this is the predicament that Peter finds himself in. So what we learn is this. Listen, salvation is free. Following Jesus is not. And nowhere in the Bible can you say it is. Salvation may be free, but to follow Jesus takes sacrifice, according to Jesus. It takes action, according to the brother of Jesus. Faith without works is dead. It is not faith at all. What that means is this. Salvation without discipleship is not salvation at all. Listen, I can say that I'm an astronaut, but if I've never taken astrophysics and I've never been to space, I'm not an astronaut. I can say I'm a Christian all day long, but if I'm not walking in discipleship with Jesus, I'm not a Christian. According to who? Jesus. So we have to be convinced that, that the sacrifice is worth it. And I don't think a lot of us are convinced that the sacrifice is worth it. Not only should we want to honor Jesus because he died on the cross and resurrected for us, we need to understand, this is selfish, but it's okay. It's okay, this kind of selfishness is okay. When we are into a relationship with Jesus, and we need to understand it does make our life better. It makes our life better. Our marriage is better. Our relationship's better. Our, our friendship's better. I even think things like our finances, and that's not a prosperity gospel thing. I'm just saying if you live not materialistic and by your own means, you just you tend to do a little bit better. Like biblical principles, that when we have a relationship with Jesus, life is better. And that's okay to acknowledge that, and we need to understand that the sacrifice is worth it. Peter, Peter absolutely understood the sacrifice was worth it. About 30 years after this conversation that he had with Jesus on the beach, Peter wrote this. Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. That's when he comes back. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed. You're blessed. If you are standing up for what is right and there is persecution because of it, that is because the spirit of glory in God rests on you. And instead of running from that or cowering to that or compromising in the face of that, lovingly stand on what is correct. And you're blessed. You're blessed. God will bless you. God will take care of you. And so listen, Peter is on the right road. He makes the right decision. He becomes that rock, but he's not perfect. And as he's walking with Jesus, look at this. As he's walking with Jesus, Jesus basically tells Peter, you're gonna be crucified like I was crucified. And he was, he was crucified upside down. And as they're walking, he, he, he notices that John is catching up. And he goes, well, Jesus, what about him? What are you gonna do with him? And you know what Jesus' answer is essentially? It's none of your business. I'll do with John what I wanna do with John. He, he basically says, if I want him to live forever until I come back, that's what I'll do. Of course, that's not what happened. But his point was, we're not talking about John. We're, Peter, we're talking about you. And what that does is that brings up a very tender spot with us as people. Um, in this, what you see is envy. You know, it's one of the Ten Commandments that we're not to be envious. Not only do we disregard that Ten Commandment in, in the Western world, we almost make it a mantra and a source of pride that if someone has something that I don't have, they should have to get rid of it and give some of it to me. That is a sin to think like that. That is wrong. And so whenever we look at our neighbor's house and we're like, oh, they've got a thousand more square footage than me, a nicer car than me, how dare they? Well, maybe they have a PhD and work 60 hours a week. Maybe that's why they drive a nicer, or maybe they're just foolish with their money. Who knows? But the point is this, that's between them and God. Not between me and them, them and God. God is the distributor of everything good in our life, okay? Now listen, and wealth is not a good thing for everybody. God is the distributor of all good things in this life, and it is between the individual and God. And those who are given much, the Bible says, are required. There's much required out of them. But that's between us and God. It's not this envy thing where we compare ourselves to each other. When we compare ourselves to each other, why did they get this and I didn't get that? That's not the deal. It's between you and the Lord. It's not between each other. And this goes for blame shifting as well. We've become masters of blame shifting in the United States. It is everyone else's fault except for ours, right? I'm broke because of Joe Biden. You're broke because you drive an $80,000 truck and you make $45,000 a year. 
That's why you're broke. That has nothing to do with the president. That has to do with your materialism and your poor spending habits, right? Now listen, my groceries are more expensive just like all of yours are, but if we are wise with our money and living by biblical principles and not materialistic and greedy, we can learn to swim even when the water gets a little bit deeper. That was good, wasn't it? I was proud of that. That's a good one. Anyways, so okay. But thanks. The, the point is this, though. We have a tendency to blame everything on everyone else. Well, it was Trump's fault. It's Biden's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's your fault. One time I got hurt in a church, and it's the church's fault, and that's why I don't believe in God anymore or go to church. And we blame shift on everything. The problem with that is this. When we stand in front of our creator at the time of judgment, and we get up there, and Jesus is going to say, what have you done with the time I've given you? Oh, what? Have you met my dad, right? Have you, have you been around this? Do you, do you know who we had as a president? Do you understand that one time I went to a church, no one shook my hand? Like, and we complain. And what Jesus is going to do when he looks at us is he's gonna say, we're not talking about any of those people. I'm talking about you. <clears throat> well, do you know how bad I've been hurt? Do you know how many things have happened to me? Do you know the cards I've been dealt? And Jesus will say, you were given access to my Holy Spirit which is bigger than your past. It is bigger than what has been done to you. It is bigger than the mistakes you've made. You know why so many of us can't let go of our past? We can't let go of the things that have happened to us, the abuses that have happened to us. And I'm not trying to be insensitive today. We don't wanna let go of those things because they identify us and they work as a really, really good crutch. But that's not what's supposed to identify you and it's not supposed to be an excuse. We will all be held accountable for what we've been given. And God is the one that distributes what we get. And we need to be okay with that. So one of the last things that John talks about in the gospel is he dispels a rumor. I find this very interesting. Word got around to all the brothers and sisters, right? All the other Christians that John was not going to die. Not only is he fast, not only does Jesus love him a lot, <laughs> he's not even going to die. <laughs> this is unfair, right? And John's like, I'm gonna die, right? You know what's interesting about this though? Peter wasn't altogether wrong about this. The rumor wasn't altogether wrong. Of the 12 disciples, the only one that died a natural death was John. Ironically, he was the only one present for Christ's crucifixion. Odd, right? So though he did die a natural death, John suffered plenty too. He was thrown into boiling oil by the Caesar and exiled to the island of Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. So that's what eventually happened to him. And then the conclusion of this book is, is so beautiful to me. So beautiful. John essentially ends this book by saying, I swear this is true. I wrote it. I was there. This testimony is true. And then he uses this beautiful hyperbole. It's, 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 a, um, it's a metaphor. It's an exaggeration, right? He doesn't mean this literally. He's, he says, I suppose if all the things that Jesus did in the three and a half years that I was with him, I suppose if I were to have written down all those things, there wouldn't be enough space on earth to contain all the things he did if I were to write all those books. And he didn't mean that literally, but what he meant is this. Jesus has done so much that was never even written down. There's so many things that Jesus has even done in our lives that we will not even be aware of until our afterlife. So many times we'll be able to look back through, and the older I get, the more you can look back over time and go, whoa, Jesus was there and there and there and there and there and there. But on the other side of this life, we're gonna be like, oh, you've done so much more than me than I, ever, I could ever imagine. And if, if, if we were to record all the wonderful things that Jesus has done for us, you know, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking, there wouldn't be enough room to contain all the books. And this is essentially what John is saying. Notice John does not mention the ascension. Right? Only, I think only one of the four gospels mentions the essential, ascension. But he does mention it in chapter 20, that Jesus went and he ascended back to the Father, okay? But he doesn't mention it here. And I think that's on purpose. I think, I think John wanted to end us with this very unique, beautiful scene with this one-on-one -on -one personal relationship that Peter had with Jesus and this call to ministry and this call to be the kind of person that God wanted him to be. I think that's just how, it, it kind of encapsulates the entire work of John, right? How do we be in a relationship with Jesus? And I think that's why he ended it the way he did. So let's talk about a couple of things. We've been studying the gospel of John seven months now, something like that. 
And we talked about the thesis of the gospel of John is that we need to believe in order to see. All that simply means is that we must be looking for the truth. Now, this isn't just for non-believers. This is for believers in here as well. There's, there's always more truth to be found. And we have to ask ourselves, are we actively pursuing the truth? Are we doing it with objectivity? Which, which means this, my wife used to be a scientist. It is bad science to go into a science experiment already determining what the outcome is going to be. That's bad science. You don't do it like that. What you do is you do all the different experiments and whatever comes out, that is the truth. That's the result. It's the same thing with the word of God. When we approach the word of God, if I've already determined in my mind how Jesus does things and what Jesus thinks is right and wrong, if I already determined that in my mind, I'm going to omit certain parts of this based on my biases. We're not to approach the word like that. We're to approach the word with humility and to approach the word objectively with an open heart and an open mind. And if we genuinely seek the truth like that, Jesus says in Matthew 7, we will find the truth. The question then becomes, will we live out that truth? Will we apply that truth? Here's the reason why that's important. There is a difference between saving faith and intellectual assent. That's a fancy way. Intellectual assent is a fancy way of saying, I know who Jesus is, but I don't live like I know who Jesus is. In the South, you'll, you'll come up to someone and you're just like, are you a Christian? They're like, yep, I know who Jesus is. Well, the devils in hell know who Jesus is, according to James, and they're in hell. So just knowing who Jesus is does not save our soul. That is just an intellectual assent. Saving faith is, is more than knowing the identity of Jesus, but applying the knowledge of Jesus to our life. Actively living in a relationship with Jesus, following his will, following his teachings and principles at any cost. That is saving faith. And true belief is a denial of self. The, Jesus gives us the definition of what a follower of him looks like in Matthew chapter 16. He says, if you wanna follow me, you must deny yourself, have a desire to live out the mission of Jesus despite the, the, the cost. He says, pick up your cross and apply his teachings to our life. Fo follow him. If we are not doing these things, it is very difficult, I would say impossible, to claim that we are, we are saved, that we are followers of Jesus if we are not doing these things. So true belief, if I say I truly believe, there is work and there is sacrifice in my faith. Are you saying we're saved by works? No, you're saved by grace. It's free. But if you're truly saved, there will be work and sacrifice that follows that. And true belief bears fruit. There will be evidence of that. If it shocks people when they find out you're a Christian, that's not good. Oh, wow, they're a Christian? That's not a good response if that shocks people. If we are truly followers of Jesus, there will be evidence of that. I love what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, and it's such a good thing to live by. You will know a tree by its fruit. So if we are Christians, there should be evidence, there should be fruit of our faith. Now listen, that doesn't mean that all of our fruit is fully mature. Like when it comes to patience, I am the very green banana in the grocery store, right? That is me. Uh, the fruit is there, but, but it's not quite developed yet. It's not, really, it's not quite ready to make a smoothie out of yet. You wanna let that one sit for a little bit longer and mature. Now, we don't have all these things perfected, but there does need to be evidence of the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control. These are the fruit of the Spirit. There should be a desire to be made more in the image of God in how we speak and how we act. This is called sanctification. That's what that means. That we should have a desire to, to think more like God, to act more like God, to respond more like God. If we truly have a relationship with him, if we truly believe, we will be, listen, this is a very important one. We will be in love with righteousness and we will be in love with the truth. Do you find it interesting that our culture throws around the word love all the time? But if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, one of the biblical hallmarks of love is a love for truth. That it loves truth. If we are truly Christians, we love truth. Truth. 
This right here is the truth. And if we are living contradictory to that, if we are promoting things contradictory to this, I would say that is not bearing the proper fruit. And we are also to love people, all people, not just people in our social enclave that think just like us, all people. These are hallmarks of true believers. Listen, on a personal level, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus and if we proclaim to love Jesus more than anything, we should be talking to Jesus. Let's put this in context of a marriage. I get up here and say, I love Alicia, my wife, more than anyone. Do you ever talk to her? No. You ever have sex with her? No. You ever learn more about her? No. You ever hang around her? No. Love her more than anything, though. You'd say, I don't think you do. <laughs> but we walk around saying, I love Jesus more than anything. Do you pray? Mm-mm. Read your Bible? Mm-mm. You go to church? Are you held accountable by people? Mm-mm. Do you ever listen to the Holy Spirit? No. So, so Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And so if, if, if we put no time and attention and energy and effort into these basic things, it, it's hard to say that we love Jesus. I'm just speaking logically this morning. Now, listen, that's, that's kind of the sacrifice and, and work side of it. The, the benefit, though, is, is when we have saving faith, when we are in a relationship with Jesus, that, that, that makes our life better. It changes our life dramatically. When we apply the teachings of the word of God and when we listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit that should be in us, right? When we follow these teachings right here, right? And we listen to the spirit speaking to us, giving us discernment, wisdom, knowledge. Those are three gifts of the Holy Spirit. When we are, when we are paying attention to the spirit and following the word, it makes your marriage better. It makes your, the raising of your children better. It makes work better. Like I said, I think it can even change your finances. It can change your attitude. It makes everything better. We start to be nicer to people. We start to not be so aggressive. We start to have a hunger for things that are, that are positive and uplifting more than dark and depressing. When we apply the word of God, when we listen to the Holy Spirit's leading, it changes us and it's good. Even as the world spirals out of control, we can have peace. We can have comfort. We can have joy. We can have fulfillment in a world that is drowning, trying to find affirmation and fulfillment. We can be affirmed by the creator. We can be fulfilled by the creator. We have the tools at our disposal to have the things that quite frankly, I think a lot of the people in the world are looking for. They're just looking in the wrong direction. We have the tools for these things. It bears fruit in our life. I'm gonna ask you guys a couple of questions and then we'll end. The first one is this. And listen, we have to be honest with ourselves this morning. It does no good for us to lie to ourselves about how good we are, okay? We have to be honest. Are you and I searching and looking for the truth about God and the truth about how we are to live? And some of you say, well, I already believe in Jesus. Okay, listen. This, this Bible, there's a lot of information in this. And even though I'm saved, the more I read and pray and get into this word, the more it finally tunes my life. I use this analogy in the eight o'clock. Uh, I've got a couple old cars. I got a 55 Mercury and it's a carbureted car, right? If you've ever messed with a carburetor, they, they, it's a lot of work to tune in a carburetor perfectly. There's, there's how much gas goes in, how much air goes in. There's how much your idle speed is. There's an accelerator pump. There's all these different things on a carburetor. Now, listen, you can get a car moving from point A to point B, even if the carburetor is not synced up very well, even if it's not tuned up very well. It may bog down. It may not go very fast. It may not be productive, right? It may not be able to do burnouts in front of your neighbors or any of that stuff. You can't do any of that stuff, but it, it will run. It's the same thing with us as Christians, now, listen, we may get from point A to point B, but in that meantime, I want to make sure that everything is dialed in, tuned up to where I run the way I should, to where I'm as efficient as I possibly be. That's what the word lets us do. So I may be saved, but when I get in here, from point A to point B, life, I want to make sure that I have the best marriage I can have, the best relationship with my kids I can have, that I can bless people as much as possible, that I can honor God as much as possible. And that's what getting into the truth allows us to do. We're finally tuning to where we run as efficiently as possible. Are we doing that? 
I'm setting you up for the second question. What will we do when we're looking for the truth? Because inevitably this will happen. What will we do when we get into the word of God and we come across a part where the word of God tells us that something we are doing is wrong? Then what will we do? Peter, do you love me more than these? When we get to those parts of the Bible where it says this lifestyle may be wrong, this passion may be wrong, this way of using your time and your money and your resources may be wrong. This way of treating your neighbor is wrong. This way of treating your wife is wrong. And when it corrects us, what will we do with that? What will we do when the Bible tells us that we have to change the way we think and act? What will we do? That's the definition of repent, by the way, to turn a different direction. What will we do at that point? Are we willing to deny ourselves in order to experience a relationship with God? Do you know the number one reason why the church is declining in the United States? The Atlantic, a very liberal publication, just did a big article on this. The number one reason is not because of megachurch pastors abusing people and mis, you know, misappropriation of funds and all that stuff. That's kind of the veneer excuse that some people use. They did this really elaborate study and the conclusion they came to, The Atlantic, not a Christian publication, a very liberal publication. The Atlantic said that it is the culture of individuality in the United States that causes people not to go to church. You know what that means? If church doesn't benefit me in some way, I'm not gonna go. And here's the, here's the odd thing about church, it's not about you. We come here to honor God and to hopefully be a blessing to the city around us. It's not about the advancement of me or the advancement of you. It's about the advancement of, of someone else's kingdom, God's kingdom. And we live in a culture right now to where we're like, well, if it doesn't advance me, why would I do it? And this is why we're seeing the rapid decline of Christianity in the United States, because it's not about us. It's about him. It's about others, right? Love God, love people. Well, I don't want that. And that's what we're saying right now in the United States. Do we truly believe the sacrifice is worth it? If Jesus tells you you're stuck in Murfreesboro for the rest of your life, if Jesus tells you that relationship is not condoned by him, if Jesus tells you to sell everything and follow him, do, you, do, do we think it's worth it? Do we understand that the things of this life are temporary? Do we understand that they will pass away? Do you understand that the sex won't always be there? The parties won't always be there? Do we understand that the house only dilapidates? That the car loses value? Do we understand that? Do we understand that every empire eventually falls? Do we understand that every human dies? Do we understand that these things are not eternal? And the last question is, are you and I seeing the evidence of God in our lives? If I'm building a case and I say, I am a follower of Jesus, what evidence do I have to support that case? What evidence do I have? We have to be willing to live in a relationship with him. Listen, the last thing I'll say to you, and I've gone too long this morning. I am no prophet by any stretch of the imagination of my prophetic. But I don't think it takes a prophet to see that if, if you and I do not start planting ourselves if you and I don't start taking this seriously, if you and I don't start pursuing things that actually matter, if we are not looking for the truth and if we are not willing to take the right stand at that crossroad, it is only going to get more difficult. We need to make sure that we are serious about what we are doing. God will bless you. God will take care of you. But listen, Jesus may look at some of you and say, hey, listen, once upon a time, you could do whatever you wanted to do, but there's gonna come a time where it's hard. Follow me. And we need to be ready in that moment to say, I'll follow you, I'll follow you. And listen, count it a blessing that I may go through whatever for his name. We need to make sure that, that, that we have drawn a line in the sand, that we are firm in our faith and that we are growing in our faith because it's not gonna be any easier for us, okay? Just you bow your heads with me, please? If you are um, in this room and maybe you're not a believer, Maybe you are digging, you're looking, you're searching. I'm ecstatic that you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Up here on my right, your left, Pastor Muhammad is up here. If you have any questions for Muhammad, he would, he would be more than happy to talk with you. Um, he's up here. Just you, whenever you feel comfortable, you can make your way up to him.
There's also men and women on both sides of the stage if you need prayer for anything in your life, anything, it doesn't matter what. And then the last thing is all the way around this room where we see a lamp on a table and then the majority of these pillars in the middle of the room, there is communion, there is bread and wine that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Everyone is welcome to take that. You just get it on your own. You can take it however you feel comfortable. The only thing that we ask, because the Bible asks it, is that we must ask Jesus to forgive us of any sin we have in our heart before we do that, okay? Let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room, God. Um, we, we live in, a, in, in such a confusing, turbulent time, God, and I pray in the middle of, of, of this storm, God, in the middle of this confusion, Father, that we would throw up our hands and say, Lord, you know everything. And that we would relent and that we would submit ourselves to you and that we would run after you and pursue you and, and, and want to grow closer to you, Lord. Just like Jesus walked on the, on, on the beach with you, God, that we could walk in that kind of relationship and know you better, Lord. I pray that you keep us safe, keep us strong, keep your hand on us, encourage us, God, be with us, show us grace and mercy. We love you and we thank you, God. Keep your hand on everyone in this room until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Love you very much. You're welcome to help yourself.